Hello, welcome to our Wednesday night Bible study here at Celebration Church in Green Bay, Wisconsin, as well as our campus over in Appleton and Stevens Point. Welcome to all of you and those who watch us all over the world on the World Wide Web. We are studying through the New Testament in the order that the books were written. The uh, New Testament and the Old Testament are both. The books are not in order. <laughs> I don't know why not. Nobody asked me, <laughs> but... It gets a little confusing. Not so much in the New Testament. You can still figure it all out. The Old Testament gets really confusing because books are way out of order. Uh, But what we're doing is just doing it as they occurred. Follow the life of Paul. Paul ends up, after his last missionary journey, he's arrested and he's drugged all the way over to Rome, Italy, which is where uh, it says he uh, eventually becomes a martyr. There's some debate as to whether or not during this time it ends as in martyrdom, or if he's actually released for a little bit and then is uh, retried again. I tend to kind of think it's, he ends it there. I don't know, there'd be, you think there'd be more some records or something, but anyway, it doesn't really matter. It all kind of ends up here. So uh, we are now reading the letters that he wrote from Rome, and one of them is to the Ephesian church, where he'd spent a lot of time with Ephesians here, kind of in the heart of everywhere where he was evangelizing. It all starts here. This is actually modern-day Turkey, and Greece and Italy is from this part of the world that the gospel spreads just everywhere. Uh, This is also this part of the world where the church is virtually non-existent today, and we'll take a look at why that is when we get to the book of Revelation, the last book in the Bible. Anyway, so he's writing to the Ephesians, the book of Ephesians, I love this book, Uh, first three chapters, all about... Christian theology, the last three chapters, my favorite parts in the Bible is always about just common sense, everyday, practical ways of living. This is how we're supposed to live as Christians, what we're supposed to do, what we're not supposed to do, how we're supposed to act, how we're not supposed to act, and how we are to interact with each other. So now, he just finished giving us a little talk about how husbands and wives should deal with each other, and basically summarizes it uh, in a Chapter 5, verse 33, each one of you must love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. Women think, well, that's not fair. He got off on the easy part. No, 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 no. (laughs) He says, a man is supposed to love his wife like he loves his own body. How do men love their own bodies? We take care of it and make it as comfortable as possible at all times. It's what we do. (laughs) We're professionals at it, right? Just we like it. Just like we make ourselves as comfortable as possible, we should make our wives as comfortable as possible. So you sitting on your butt and stressing out your wife and making her do everything around the house is not loving her like yourself, all right? So it goes both ways. Wives are supposed to respect their husbands. Then we read in uh, chapter six, again, these weren't written in chapters. So we break it up and put numbers everywhere so we can find out where, where we're following along. He continues then, he says, children should obey their parents. And we talked last week about, that's fine, children should obey their parents, adults should honor their parents, and there's a huge difference. Once you become an adult at age 18, you should now be honoring your parent. I say this because of the vast amount of young people that I run into in their 20s and even their 30s seem to be incapable of making any decisions or acting on their own because their parents want them to do one thing or the other, which I think is absurd. You know, well, Bible says obey your parents. No, 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 children, obey your parents. You're a grown man, for heaven's sakes. Make your own decision. 
Sometimes your parents don't like it. Even when they don't like it, you can still be respectful. I did many things as a young man my parents totally disapproved of. One of them was going into ministry. <laughs> the other one was marrying the redhead. <laughs> Didn't like it at all. <laughs> I got hilarious pictures. Honestly, I say this, I always forget about it. I should bring you pictures of our wedding day. Everybody's smiling except my mother. <clears throat> She's furious through the whole thing. Just livid. She's mad as a hornet and a rattlesnake. I didn't go around saying, gee, I'm supposed to obey my mommy. No, I respected my mommy. And, uh, and she was respectfully invited to the wedding. <laughs> if she didn't come, that's on her. <laughs> I was getting married either way. I didn't care. All right. So, uh, so we talked about that. And now we're at verse four, where we read this instruction to the Christian community. Fathers, do not exasperate your children. Instead, bring them up in the training and instruction of the Lord. Now, wait a minute. This can't possibly be right. It is not fathers who exasperate their children. It is children who exasperate their fathers and parents in general. But that's not what Paul says. Interesting how oftentimes Paul says things that just seem, wait a minute. Really, that's the way it should be? So uh, I just finished writing a book. I, I wrote a book uh, about a year ago uh, for women uh, on how to succeed with men. It's called Treat Him Like a Dog. And uh, many of you have that book. Uh, I wrote another book for men. It says, Treat Your Wife Like a Truck. And that's being printed as we speak and should be here before Christmas. Uh, this is the third in the series. This is my first foray into giving parenting advice. And it's called Treat Them Like Monkeys. Uh, and we just, and that manuscript is finished. And we're tweaking the final manuscript Treat them like a hornet's nest, how to deal with difficult people. So that's the series, all right? Myself and a co-writer, Jenna McCarthy, not Jenny McCarthy, but Jenna McCarthy. Uh, and we've been writing this. Anyway, so this one, this will be spring before this sees the light of day. It just takes so long to produce these books. <clears throat> but I want to read one chapter to you. And the way these books work is the whole book is not about treating them like a dog or her like a truck. It's just the name of the first chapter. And it gives the various analogies. Uh, and, and the point of it is, is this. What a lot of people have said for years, decades really, in the whole marriage enrichment field, if you want to call it that, that, that I'm involved in. Uh, they believe that couples need uh, you know, training. They need relationship training. They need skill training. We need to train them how to interact with each other because they lack the skills. I take a contrary view, which is no shock. I do with most things. I don't think people need skills. I think they already have the skills. They're just not using them towards each other. All right? In the book to the girls, treat them like a dog, treat them like a cab driver, treat them like all these different things. These are skills women use all the time. They just don't do it with their husbands. Do it with your husband. Same with the guy. They know how to treat their trucks well and plan for adventures and all these things in life. Do the same thing with the girl. And the same with these parents. A lot of us already have the skills that we need. We just don't apply them for whatever reason. Anyway, so in the book, Treat Them Like Monkeys, I have a chapter called Treat Them Like Sea Glass. And I'm going to read this to you. It says, I travel constantly. One of my favorite things to do whenever I'm in a coastal town is comb the local beaches for sea glass. How many of you have absolutely no idea what sea glass is? I don't either, actually. 
Remember, this is a co-writer. This is her experience. We blend them together and it sounds like one person, but anyway. In fact, I put a definition of what sea glass is in here because I didn't know what it was. Sea glass starts out as normal shards of broken glass from bottles or even shipwrecks. These shards of glass are rolled and tumbled in the ocean for years and years until all their edges are rounded off and the slickness of the glass has been worn to a frosted appearance. So that's what happens. That's what's called sea glass, real pretty little shards. They're not, it's all safe, not sharp at all. It has this look that's taken years to develop, just rolling around uh, from the water. Over the years, there's something I've discovered about sea glass, and that is this. It's always there, always. Some days and in some locations, it can seem harder to find, but if you look long and hard enough, it's always unquestionably there. Of course, sometimes the beach is covered with seaweed or tar, or you get distracted by the sailboats gliding by, or your wife asks you to grill 30 or 40 hamburgers for a few of your closest friends, or you're tired and you just don't feel like scouring the shoreline for bits of broken beer bottles. The fact is, lots of things can get in the way of the sea glass hunt if you let them. But guess what? The sea glass is still there. The thing is, I believe sea glass is a perfect metaphor for the good in your children. It is always there. There's days where you can't even begin to imagine it, but it's always there. But as perfectly imperfect creatures, sometimes your kids are covered in tar. And in those tar-covered moments, you're not thinking about their beautiful, shiny sea glass bits. You need to do something about that tar. And you point to it, and you point it out, remove it immediately, and you pontificate swiftly and deeply of your own hard-earned tar avoidance strategies. In other words, you gotta focus on the bad. Hey, we're just doing our job. The problem is that all of us, but kids especially, react to the negative way more strongly than we react to the positive. It's just human nature. I can't count how many times I've heard a kid say, my parents criticize every single thing I do, or I can't do anything right. Well, hopefully these are exaggerations. To the kid in question, it's exactly what it feels like when you're over there just doing your job of trying to remove the tar. The solution, remember, keep looking for the sea glass. It's always there, even after a devastating oil spill. Instead of only looking for ways you can guide or instruct or otherwise help your child improve, shift mental gears every once in a while and find something fabulous in him or her and point it out. Tell him what he's already doing right. I really appreciate that you made your bed without me asking, you might note. I'm proud of how nicely you're sharing with your sister. You've worked so hard on your spelling, it's really paying off. The reason it can be so difficult to compliment your children is because, well, you know they can do better. But if you constantly point out where they fall short, they will become discouraged and want to give up altogether. Ephesians 6.4, which is what we started out with, says, Fathers, do not exasperate your children. When I first read those words, I thought, wait a minute, isn't this backwards? Aren't the children the ones who exasperate the fathers? Even Webster's Dictionary uses the following sentence to illustrate the word exasperate. Quote, small children can exasperate their parents with endless questions about why this or that. See, it's the children who do exasperating. Even Webster agrees, but the Bible has it right. Right? 
We are the ones who should take care not to do the exasperating. You see, when children do the exasperating, it is just an exhausting experience for the parent. But when the parent does the exasperating, constantly pointing out the child's shortcomings and failures, then great damage can be done to the child. Our goal as parents is to build our children into confident, productive, well-adjusted adults. Would you try to build a building by constantly tearing it down, adding one brick and then taking away two? Of course you wouldn't. Psychologists say, say it takes five positive comments or interactions to outweigh the pain of just one single negative. Think about that. Every time you scold, punish, or even redirect your child, even if all those actions are both deserved and appropriate, it takes five compliments, acknowledgments, attaboys, or high fives just to get back to neutral. For the record, I'm not suggesting we all start molly-coddling our kids and letting them run roughshod over us by overlooking the bad and telling them they're wonderful around the clock. Quite the contrary, I'm a huge fan of discipline. Heck, the word discipline has the word disciple right in it. I'm simply reminding you, as a fellow parent who's been in the tar removal trenches for several decades now, that it's important never to lose sight of the fact that our kids are mostly good even when they're acting like little jerks. Nobody ever found a treasure trove of sea glass quite by accident. It's what you look for is what you'll find. Look for the good in your kids. I promise you it's always there. So that's the little chapter from the upcoming book, Treat Them Like Monkeys. So don't overdo it is what Paul is saying. Don't be so harsh and hard and demanding. And I get it. They can drive you nuts. Look at these sweet faces on the front row here. You wouldn't think they'd ever drive anybody nuts. But they do. <laughs> They're kids. It's what they do. But we have to love and encourage them as we instruct them. He says, in the instruction of the Lord. So there is their instruction. But if you're the one who's always pointing out what they do wrong, and you think a quick, yeah, that was good, is going to counter it, you're sadly mistaken. All right, then he goes on to talk about slaves. Now, we don't have slaves today, thanks be to God, but we got something very close to slaves. They're called employees. And uh, these are people who you do, if you have a job, you're the closest thing that we have today to slaves. Uh, back in the day, you were either independently wealthy and you didn't have to do any work, or uh, you, were, uh, you know, had your own land, which very few people did, but a lot of people were servants. They were just servants. That was their lot in life. And servants did whatever servants were told to do, kind of like you and your boss, right? You do what you gotta do even though you think your boss is a nitwit. All the people working for me say amen. All right, so now, what does it say about these people? Slaves, obey your earthly masters with respect and fear and with sincerity of heart, just as you would obey Christ. That's the point. A lot of people, they're great to their boss, uh, or, or they don't like their boss, or they're jerks to their boss. Well, as people of faith, we should never be that way. You should literally treat your boss like in your own mind, you know, I'm working for Jesus. Well, you don't know my boss. That's not the point. Your boss might be a fornicating, disaster, alcoholic, abuser, who knows? But the attitude is, this man represents authority over me. I'm going to treat and respond to that person like I would if Jesus was working and telling me what to do. 
That's the way we're supposed to be. Remember, this is all going to interactions with people, husbands and wives, fathers and children, now employees, employers. Obey them not only to win their favor when their eye is on you. Well, see, that's, a lot of people do that. They work really hard when the boss shows up. As soon as the boss shows up, I get goofing off, right? As Christians, we're not supposed to do that. We're supposed to work as hard as if he was right there standing over our shoulders. That's why Christians should be some of the most valued employees in the world. Men who, uh, and companies who hire people who truly understand uh, people of faith like to hire people of faith because of their strong work ethic. It is the strong Christian work ethic that actually uh, marked the United States as a highly successful and uh, prosperous nation. Uh, they called it, in fact, the Protestant work ethic. If you look in your history, I don't know why, what happened to the Catholics, but <laughs> they called it specifically the Protestant work ethic. And it came from Martin Luther, who we're celebrating this year, uh, I think next month or this month or whatever, it's the 500th year anniversary of when Luther started the Reformation. It changed the world. And one of the things is that he believed people were saved by grace, all this is done by faith, and he said, well, did that mean you didn't have to do anything? No, no, no. You don't do things to get forgiveness. That's what he got in the face of the religious leaders of his day, the Catholic Church. You know, just do lots of penance and do this and do that, and that'll take care of your sins. He says, that's not right. That's not what the Bible teaches. And by the way, he wasn't trying to rebel from the Catholic Church. He just challenged the Catholic Church. Uh, it was actually later in his life and before his death that they actually started breaking away. And they started calling them Lutherans, which he was mortified by. It's like, I hear you calling me your gungers, gungorians, you know. I've, I've got gungorians on Facebook. It's kind of a funny joke, you know, but I mean, people took it seriously. But he was just challenging. This, this is not how this is. Not that we don't do good things. In fact, because we've been saved, we should do really good things. But not to earn God's favor, but to love our fellow man and to take care of ourselves and to not rely on anybody else, which is what Paul taught, remember? He said, if somebody doesn't work, don't feed them. He wasn't big into, you know, I don't think he'd like our current welfare system, all right? And this was what Paul taught. He was really strict on this stuff. And this is what Luther taught and churches that broke off from him and most of them who came to this country came with that thinking and they worked very, very hard. And again, historians refer to it as the Protestant work ethic. That's how this little group of people in this new land became more prosperous and more powerful than the nations they had lived with virtually overnight. Kind of a, a cool thing. So uh, this is the attitude we should have. Don't just work when they're looking at you, but as slaves of Christ, doing the will of God from your heart. Serve wholeheartedly as if you were serving the Lord. See, that's what he's saying. Uh, not people. Because you know that the Lord will reward each one for whatever good they do, whether they are slave or free. So he said that even for those who weren't slaves at the time. Do whatever you do. Do it with all your heart. Be your best. Don't be a slacker. And don't be one of these people, as soon as the boss leaves, you bring up your game of solitaire on your computer. All right? Don't do that. Work hard like he's there all the time. And then masters, which we would call in this case employers, treat your employees in the same way. Don't threaten them, since you know that he who is both their master and yours in heaven and there is no favoritism in him. You say, well, my, past, my, my uh, boss doesn't do that. Well, your boss is probably not a Christian. You say, well, yeah, he is. Well, then he's wrong. 
You shouldn't go around threatening to fire everybody. You better do this. He should be treating those that work for him with a degree of respect. All right, so that's all his uh, talk right there of interaction between key groups, husbands, wives, children, parents, employees, employers. Then he says, finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God. Put it on. In other words, it's intentional. You got to put it on. If you don't put it on, it isn't there. Well, I mean, it's there. It's in over in the corner. But you've got to be intentional. All right? A lot of people in their Christian faith are not intentional. And uh, as a result, we tend to react to the things instead of prepare for things. So what do you mean? Why would you do that? He says, so you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. The devil has a plan for you. It's not a good plan. He's going to do whatever he can to mess with you. And a lot of us get in trouble, and then we try to start putting on the armor while they're shooting arrows at us already. Uh, No, we should be proactive. Stay on top of things. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood. Boy, is that a hard one to swallow. Because we're all convinced my life would be great if it wasn't for those people. My great life would be great if it wasn't for my idiot husband. My wife would be great if my life would be great if it wasn't for the, those guys over there or that boss or these people I have to deal with. Or my in-laws. Boy, I just got a big in-law email today. <laughs> Some lady going psycho because of her mother-in-law. It was very funny. Anyway. Uh, just, you know, ah, ah, ah. It's, all, it's everybody else's fault. Remember, I, I, I taught this, I think, on Mother's Day this last year or whatever, that when you react badly, uh, we're convinced the only reason we're, where that comes from is the other person. That person made that. That person created the ugly that I'm seeing. Therefore, I've got to get rid of that person and get away from them. But that's not what's happening. When you act badly, all that other person doing is they're revealing the ugly that is in you. Because we all like to deceive ourselves. We all actually believe that at our core, we're always very good and well-behaved. And what we do is we intentionally surround ourselves with the kind of people who don't tick us off, which is what everybody does, right? We try to, the kind of people we like to be around, the kind of friends that we like to have, and the people in our lives, and this is it. And as long as these people, I'm, I'm calm, I'm calm, I'm very calm. But when the wicked mother-in-law comes over, now, and look at it ugly, that's not normally me. Oh, yes, it is. The only thing is you don't normally see it because we play this game of hiding it. And when you react badly, it's not, don't be pointing fingers at the other person. All they've done is reveal it. That is, in fact, you. That's why God allows these people to come into your life, to show you. You want to see what you really look like? And they send Marky over to visit you for a while. And, oh, I can't stand that guy. It's him. I just got to get rid of him. There are people that literally experiences with virtually everybody they encounter, so they actually end up with their lives. Some of you might know people like this. Some of you might be people like this. Where you literally, they literally have virtually nobody around them. They don't want to be around anybody. They hate people, all people, because those people create all this ugly. Because as long as they're not there, then I don't have that ugly. Yeah, you do. It's just not revealed. You're playing this game of hiding from people. So anyway, we often think that our enemy is people. It's not people. We've got our own personal demons, as it were, to deal with. Not that you actually have demons in you, but our, our problems and our issues. And the things that we wrestle f- for uh, tend to be uh, not against people, flesh and blood. All right? 
Everybody say, not people. Yeah, your struggle is not people. Oh, you don't know the people. I, I'm telling you, it's not the people. What is it? Well, it's against rulers, against authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. These are your problems. Now, does the devil use these people? Oh, yeah. Sometimes very skillfully. All right? Uh, but anyway, sometimes it's just you know, some of this, your own issues that you got to deal with which is the premise, by the way, of my book, Treat Them Like a Hornet's Nest, <laughs> How to Deal with Difficult People. First thing you have to understand is they just keep revealing stuff you need to work on. These people are not your enemies. You need to get to the point that you can actually be nice around the Wicked Witch of the West. Amen. And even if you're married to her sister. <laughs> All right? You have got, you've got to be able to get along with people. Even when they tick you off and when they irritate you, it's called growing in your faith, living out your Christianity. You living in a vacuum where nobody ticks you off is not growing in your faith. You need to grow. And uh, you say, well, it's painful. Yep. Therefore, put on the full armor of God. Why? So that when the day of evil comes, well, well, wait a minute, that's got to be a typo. You mean if the day of evil comes. No. It's when. He said, well, I've never experienced that. Hang on, sunshine. Because <laughs> it's coming. It's a coming. You see the train coming. It's coming down the train. I'm telling you, this thing is coming at you. And uh, it's going to mess with you. And you need to be prepared. You think, oh, I'm not going to have any problem. You're delusional. Things going to happen you have no control over. And the truth is, the better part of our lives, we don't have any control over. You say, oh, I got a good job. You got, you got nothing. That job could go tomorrow. Well, I got a lot of money, money in, the, money in my retirement fund. The economy crashes, and I think it's sliced down to nothing. It's on a roll right now, praise the Lord. <laughs> 24% in 10 months. Unheard of. This is with our crazy president. You know, he's, you know, he does a lot of stuff to drive people crazy, but he's getting rid of all these regulations that have been choking the life out of these businesses. And they're roaring to life. But just as fast as it roars, man, it can crash. If you think, boy, this is great, I'm gonna, it's gonna, it's gonna grow 30% a year for the next 10 years. You're crazy. <laughs> that, that's not the way it works. There's a day of evil coming. Your health, you got no control over. You got, no, you got little control over hardly anything. You don't really even have control when you go to the toilet, for heaven's sakes. Who knows what's going to happen there? <laughs> That's true. How humiliating is this? Some days you can't even poop. What's that all about? <laughs> really, I should be able to poop. That's like one of the fundamental things in life, right? <laughs> Not that I personally am having this issue. I'm just saying. <laughs> I pooped just fine. <laughs> but I thank the Lord for it. Because I know the day of evil could be coming. All right? Put on the full armor of God. Get ready. So you may be able to stand your ground. And after having done everything to stand. Theologians say this is a military phrase that he's using. A part of the Roman uh, training of Roman soldiers was to be able to do battle and then get back into a stance again. To take on the enemy and get back again, ready to fight again. All right? We have a fight and then we want to go on vacation. 
You know, in a real war, you don't get to stop. <laughs> it's time. Wait, wait, wait. Uncle, no, they're going to try and kill you. Stand firm then, he says. And then he starts describing what this armor is like, the kind of thing we should be wearing. And he uses military analogies. The belt of truth buckled about your waist. The breastplate of righteousness in place. And with your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. In addition to all this, take up the shield of faith. Why? With which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. You ever have that experience? <laughs> it's not just one, but a whole bunch of arrows are flying at you. Everything seems to be going wrong. You're going to collapse, or are you going to hold up the shield of what? Faith. It helps you battle against all this stuff that will come against you. Take the helmet of salvation. Protect your head, man. Take the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. You can't do battle if you don't know the word of God. The most effective offensive weapon any person of faith has is the scriptures which you cannot do if you don't know the scriptures. You need to read the Bible. You need to get some of these truths inside of you. Some of you should be memorizing key verses, verses that really impact you powerfully. Man, memorize them. Get them inside you. Why? Because, man, you'll be able to pull that sword out and ready to go when the day of evil comes. All right? Um, and then pray in the spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. With this in mind, be alert. Always keep on praying for all the Lord's people. Why should you be alert? Because the day of evil might be coming. How many times Jesus said, get ready, be ready, don't sleep, don't be sleeping. And he gave analogies about people sleeping, not being ready. He says, you don't know what time all this stuff's gonna happen. You need to be ready. Virtually every time in the Bible, in the New Testament, where it talks about the end of the world coming, and some of it's really creepy, you know, hard to understand, but you get the sense, this is not good. Well, why is that all in this? So we can argue about what it means? No. It would always end with a therefore. Whenever there's a therefore, you got to ask yourself what it's there for. He says, therefore, seeing what's going to come, the manner of lives we should have, how we should be ready, be prepared. Don't be sleeping at the switch. Be Alert. The truth is, and uh, I don't know if we've already gone through that part of the scripture or whatever. No, maybe it's Peter. We'll, we'll get it when we get to Peter. Uh, where he says, that, you know, don't, don't act, or maybe it was Hebrews, I don't know, we'll get there. <laughs> where it says, don't act like this trial that you're going through as though some strange thing is happening to you. Right? Whatever you're going through, this is horrible. I didn't plan on this. You know, and there's times it feels like that, you know, but he says, no, no, you gotta realize you're in a battle. My wife, very, very sick. I wasn't planning on this. But you've got to keep the shield of faith up. Keep the helmet of salvation on. You know? Seriously. When they said, for, for better or for worse, and in sickness and in health, I thought they were talking about the flu. I did a runny nose or something, you know? I don't know if you this. Holy cow! So, but don't be surprised. As though some strange thing is happening to you. Well, it feels very strange, doesn't it? When you fall into some mess that you were not seeing. Be alert. And then he says, also pray for me, that whenever I speak, not me, but him, Paul, pray for Mark Gunger. <laughs> no, 
although you should. That would be nice. Pray for me that whenever I speak, words may be given to me so that I will fearlessly make known the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains. Pray that I may declare it fearlessly as I should. And then he wraps up the letter. Tychius, our dear brother and faithful servant in the Lord, will, let, will tell you everything so that you also may know how I am and what I am doing. So this guy will fill in all the blanks. Okay. And I am sending him to you for this very purpose, that you may know how we are and that he may encourage you. They didn't have FaceTime back then. They, they sent bodies. <laughs> Go tell them how I'm doing. Go encourage them. And then they would show up and let them know where they're going, and they, just, they felt very comforted and, and reassured. Peace be to the brothers and sisters, and love with faith from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace to all who love our Lord Jesus Christ with an undying love. And that is the end of his letter to the Ephesians. Now, the next group of letters are what uh, Bible uh, scholars refer to as the uh, pastoral letters. I'm getting hot up here. Take this thing off. You like my African shirt today? I wear it like once a year, maybe. It's hand-painted. I don't think I should throw this in the washer. Anyway, okay. So, what was I talking about? Oh, the pastoral letters. Now, this is when Paul writes three letters to two pastors. One of them is uh, Titus, and the other one is Timothy, both who Paul had encouraged in the ministry, and Timothy, uh, much younger, I think probably Titus was as well. What we're seeing here now is Paul preparing for the next generation of Christian leaders, which is something we all have to keep in mind, you know. Um, I know sometimes, you know, I, I agree, I'm, I'm glad that you love me, which is better than you hating my guts, because that's really a drag. But sometimes people say, well, hey, why do you, why do you let these other guys preach once in a while? Why can't you just do all the preaching so much better? I get it, but the only way they'll get better is they've got to learn how to do it. And they're the next generation. Now, having said that, I'm the, I don't have no plans to go anywhere. I really don't. I mean, most guys my age are already getting ready to go into retirement. They are. I'm not. I'm what's called a late bloomer. All right? So I, I see no time in the near or distant future when I will cease to do what I'm doing, uh, as long as I have the health to do it. Yeah, well, thank you. I would like a condo in Florida, though, I got to tell you. <laughs> Just, well, I'll still preach on Sunday, but I'm flying back to Florida after the service, man, you know, during February, March, and April. And then I'll, I'll come back after that, but anyway. Long way to get there yet. So, so he's writing to these young guys and thinking about preparing the next leaders. We should always be thinking beyond ourselves. We need to be raising up the children that we have. These are going to be the next leaders in the church. We need to get the word of God into them and maturity into them because at some point, they're in charge. You say, that's frightening. I know, but they're in charge. But it won't be frightening if we put in them what we have. Uh, in recent decades, uh, it's been proven that the church has done a very poor job. Uh, parents have done a poor job, quite frankly, of putting their values into their children from a Christian standpoint. Uh, and that's sad, and we need to do better. We're constantly striving and finding ways to do better. Uh, 
Recent studies have shown that 80% of children raised in churches like ours, evangelical churches, by the second year in college, totally give up on their faith. 80%, that's horrible. Now, we can do better than that. Now, I get everybody will make their own decisions, and some kids will turn to decide to turn away, maybe come back later. You know, they do their little prodigal run for a while. I get that, but we've got to do better than what we've been doing. And that's why we need to teach them the scriptures and help them to grow and why our emphasis at Celebration Church is much less on hot dog eating contests and more about getting the word of God in them, right? You know, we used to have a youth ministry that had three, 400 kids every Wednesday night coming. But it was all about partying and running around and laughing and playing games and nobody was growing and we kept finding people in corners doing all kinds of stuff, you know. It's it like, hello. You know, then you start really teaching the Bible and getting that in and the, you know, crowds kind of slim down because that's not what they want. Well, I don't care what they want. We need to, I would rather have 20 kids that we can really get this in than 300 kids, even though it looks good on the outside, that don't get this. So we need to teach them faith. So we need to get this on to the next generation. So this is what Paul is doing. He's working on Timothy. We're going to start with Timothy first. He wrote two letters to, uh, to this young pastor. Uh, and we'll take a look at these two letters, and then we'll read the one uh, to Titus. So here we are, 1 Timothy, chapter 1, verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the command of God our Savior and of Christ Jesus our hope. To Timothy, my true son in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. I, as I urged you when I went into Macedonia, which is uh, up in here, I believe, yes, yes, this, to stay in uh, Ephesus, which is the letter we just read, so that you may command certain people not to teach false doctrines any longer. So he intentionally left them behind because there were some people that were being a real pain in the butt. And already in the early church, there were people who were rising up in the ranks of Christianity, not to help it, but to corrupt it. And uh, we have that same problem even to this day. There's always been. Paul warns over and over again, watch out for false teachers. Even Jesus said, beware, false teachers will come. And that's, you know, again, that's about being ready that he just said, beware, we should be looking so that when they come, we go, oh, there's one. And not, oh, I'm shocked that there's one. Okay. So uh, he leaves them intentionally behind because he has to deal with certain people. He doesn't mention names here. Uh, I think he mentions a couple of names later. But, uh, um, uh, or to devote themselves to myths. Just these fantasies and endless genealogies. And, you know, such things promote controversial speculations rather than advancing God's work, which is by faith. Now, there's a lot of stuff. I often get, you know, comments from me, well, why don't we get into these just wild idea about this and, the, and some people enjoy that and you can even be a good guy and still enjoy it I just I don't know what the point is I honestly don't you know figuring out all the layers of the symbolism of the Ark of the Covenant to our present day faith what, what is that I don't know to some people it's a big deal I'm just saying to me I don't go there I would rather just talk about let's, let's live this thing right but you can get into stuff that actually become a problem. They get into all these theories and stuff. And he says, Paul's saying this is a waste of time. 
They're doing all this speculating. It's one of the reasons that I have avoided teaching the book of Revelation. Because if there is a book that is full of speculation and people argue about and get real intense about, you know, and I think, seriously, you don't know what that really means. Yes, I do. No, you don't. You're guessing just like everybody else. At least have a humble attitude about it. This is what I think it might mean. But no, they get it and they start arguing about these things. That just What is the point of when the anti... Is the mark of the beast 666? Or is it something that represents 666? Or is it something made of sticks that sounds like six? And I don't you know all these things. And it's like, I don't know. Shut up. Anyway, uh, why I avoid it. But I will get there. We're going to go through the whole thing. And... Uh, I'll be honest, you'll be hearing a lot of, I don't know what that means. Anyway, okay. (laughs) The goal of this command is love. So the point isn't just to slam people, but to get them back to the fundamentals of Christianity, which is about love. This is about love, not about arguing what you think about every little thing. And, And then this, I praise you highly. If this is the best congregation in the world that I've ever run into, you almost never hear people arguing about stupid things. I mean, if there's one thing you've heard from me, it's that. <laughs> Thank you. And it's, and it's good, because it's not just the point and arguing about all kinds of doctrines and all kinds of twists and turns. And the goal is love, which comes from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Now, some have departed from these. From what? Love, pure heart, good conscience, sincere faith. It kind of gets boring after a while. Always want to look for something a little bit more spectacular. You know, I've, I've actually challenged pastors. It's, it's like they're always coming with some new revelation, some new direction. Some... I remember one guy was talking, I said, stop. What are you doing? It's like you're bored with Jesus. You know, I got news for you. Life sometimes gets boring. How many of you know that? You get up, you do whatever you do, you go to bed tomorrow, whee, we get to do it again. And it, it's, it's boring. And, and, you know, and even couples, couples are like this. Sometimes they get bored and they get, you know, discontent and they start complaining and, and getting all kinds of weird things, you know, especially even, watch it with these little monkeys here, but with the, you know, their romantic life, you know, oh, we want to spice things up. And so there's all kinds of goofy, weird things. Stop. Well, well, it's kind of getting boring. If you're bored doing that, there's something wrong with you. Man, I've never been bored with that, ever. And I've been bored. I've been in church when I've been bored out of my ever-loving mind. I've been in church listening to the preacher and bored beyond measure. And I, I was the preacher. That's, that's how bored I've been. But I, I have never been bored doing that other stuff. Just spice it up and stick your head in the toilet, for heaven's sakes. They get bored. They get bored with and Some people literally get bored with the Christian faith, you know, the basics. You know, loving your neighbor, doing all the stuff we're supposed to do, gathering, praying, doing all the stuff we're supposed to do. They get bored, so they're always looking for some new revelation. Tell me something new, something I've never heard before. You know, don't look for that stuff, okay? That stuff usually will just get you in trouble.
trouble. And over my many years, I've never seen it play out in a good way, ever. All right? Be content with Jesus. You should never have to get bored with him where you need something to rattle your brain. All right? Uh, They've departed from these and turned to meaningless talk, which is what I call it, meaningless talk, but they want to be teachers of the law. In this case, he's referring to the Old Testament. These guys would come in, look into the Old Testament Bible, and a lot of these weirdos do. I've told this a hundred times. Don't get all crazy on the Old Testament stuff. When people say, well, the Old Testament says this, and the Old Testament says that, just, just, just back away. Get away from them. We don't take our cue. We learn from the Old Testament. It puts things in context for us. But we live by the New Testament. We live by the law of grace, not all this stuff. We can't have an Easter egg because you're not supposed to have colored things in the Old Testament says you can't wear tattoos because the Old Testament says you shouldn't mark your body. And you can't do this because the Old Testament says this. You can't. Stop. <laughs> so anyway, they like this all fancy stuff and figuring out because they want to be teachers. Why? Because people look up to teachers. I'm going to razzle-dazzle you with my knowledge. But he says they don't know what they're talking about. Amen. (laughs) Or what they so confidently affirm. They're just blathering. We know that the law is good if one uses it properly. Now here's Paul. (laughs) He's always been a little confusing. He has taught in no uncertain terms that we do not live by the law. Well, we've seen this, right? The whole office teaching. But then he keeps throwing this thing out there. The law is good. (laughs) Really? (laughs) Well, yeah, so what he's saying is all this that they live, particularly because he was raised under it, all these Jews were raised under it. He's basically saying, well, it's good, but we don't live by it anymore. He says, we know that the law is made not for the righteous, but for lawbreakers and rebels, the ungodly and sinful, the unholy and irreligious. And then he goes on to give us a more specific list for those who kill their fathers or mothers, for murderers, for sexually immoral immoral people, for those practicing homosexuality, for slave traders, liars, and perjurers, and for whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine that conforms the gospel concerning the glory of the blessed God that he entrusted to me. So he goes through this list. Of course, one of the the big politically hot button today is the whole sexual orientation thing. And a lot of Christians act as though it's a much more horrible sin than everything else. And it's really not. It certainly stands out. It's listed. But it's all listed right along liars. Okay? And so don't don't get mean to people, you know, for whatever reason, whatever they do. Now, if they ask the question, is the Bible okay with it? The answer is no, but I mean, we hate anybody. Uh, The Bible's uh, against all kinds of stuff. Uh, and especially even this, this, you know, the sexual thing, you know, the Bible's really pretty restrictive in the first place. Uh, you aren't supposed to be doing the wild thing with your boyfriend. You aren't supposed to be cheating on your wife or your husband. Jesus said you should watch what you're even looking at. So looking at porn, all that, all that's, all that's bad. And they said, well, what about this? Well, it's just added to the list. It's, you know, it's not picking on anybody. It's pretty restrictive in the first place. Why? It's a powerful thing, and powerful things need to be controlled or brings a lot of damage. That's why everybody doesn't get to have their own nuclear bomb. All right? Oh, we should have freedom. I should be able to get my own nuke. No, no, we don't, we don't do that. 
because it needs to be controlled. It's great and powerful uh, in, in, in the right context, but you got to do it in the right context. But don't be a jerk to people. I always cringe. I, I just cringe when I hear these stories of people, you know, refusing to do business with someone, you know, like, who's gay. I just, really? Why are you being a jerk? Now, I agree with you. I don't think the government should force you to be able to do anything. I don't like government in general, period. So they're always at the bottom of the list, as far as I'm concerned. Amen. Praise God. But uh, having said that, don't be an idiot. If someone wants to buy something from you, sell it to them. Well, I don't like the lifestyle. Well, how do you know what the other people are doing? You know, they're selling wedding cakes. You know how many people are fornicating their brains out by the time they get married? You know how many people in our church are fornicating their brains out before they get married? <laughs> it's like talking to the wall. Are you fornicating? Yeah. You know, yes, I know. <sighs> you don't ask questions about that. How do you know that the person that you're marrying, making the wedding cake for, that he didn't, you know, steal that woman from another man and destroy the marriage? They don't ask those questions. See, they just go after people they don't like, in this case, gays. And I think it's wrong. I think we should be like Jewish people. Jewish people, I've said this before, Jewish people really don't think highly of non-Jewish people. It is what it is. According to their religion, they kind of think we're kind of dirty, creepy people, or, you know, because we don't eat the right, because they're a strict Jewish man. They can't even use a grill that cooks chicken and use that same grill to cook beef. That's unclean. You know? I mean, they're really, really strict. Then they get a bunch around to us, and ugh, who knows what they're eating, right? So they, they don't think highly of us, but they'll sell us anything. They, it's not a slam. They should. We should do the same thing. We should be just like them. I disagree with that other person. So what? You think the Jew who's selling you whatever he's selling you cares about your personal belief system? He couldn't care less. He wants to know one answer, cash or credit. All right? That's all he wants to know. And we should be the same way. I'm not slamming them. I said, this way we should be. Just do business with people. Serve people. Be a nice provider. Don't be a jerk to people, particularly when you're just singling out one group. Wrong. We shouldn't be doing it. So we're not supposed to do it. Well, yeah, if they were born-again Christians in your church, okay, we would have a discussion because all of these things should not be happening in the church, including fornicating your brains out. Move on, Mark. All right. Verse 12, I thank Christ Jesus our Lord who has given me strength, that he considered me trustworthy, appointing me to his service, even though I was once a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent man. You remember, Paul, his name was Saul at the time, was the first one who went after Christians and had them arrested, thrown into prison. Uh, he, he approved of the first martyr being killed, uh, Stephen. Okay, so he was not like on the edge of Christianity. He hated it and did everything he could to make Christian lives a living hell. He wanted to force people to denounce Christianity and turn away from it. And then he becomes the apostle to the Gentiles. It's an amazing transformation. 
So he said, even though I was once a blasphemer, a persecutor, and a violent man, I was shown mercy because I acted in ignorance and unbelief. The grace of our Lord was poured out on me abundantly along with the faith and the love that are in Christ Jesus. Here is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Somebody say amen. amen. That's right. Of whom, he says, I am the worst. But for that very reason, I was shown mercy so that in me, the worst of sinners, Christ Jesus might display his immense patience as an example for those who would believe in him and receive eternal life. Sometimes I hear from people, oh, pastor, I was, you know, God can't use me. I'm such a mess. I'm such a, how can God, he can use you by showing that even people who are really messed up can be saved. And this will be good news to all the other people who are messed up because <laughs> there's a lot of jacked up people in this world. And if God can take you and make something beautiful, turn that little turd into a diamond. Hallelujah. <laughs> right? What does that say to the world? There's hope for me. And there is. There's hope for everybody. Hope for everybody. Even Chicago Bears fans. <laughs> uh, so, it takes a stretch, I realize, but it can be done. All right. Where's my Bears fan? Is he not here? Tonight? He's not here? Oh, there are some. All right. I was thinking of one guy in particular I like to insult. I hate, it. I hate it when you insult somebody and they're not here. It's like you waste your whole energy. What was the point of that? <laughs> now, to, <laughs> tell them all about it, would you? Now to the king eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. And that's exactly right. I love that. Boy, you want to boil the gospel down? Right in that little paragraph. One thing is true. Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners. And even though that was the worst, he pours his grace out on me to show that anybody, anybody can be changed. Man, that's all of it right there in a nutshell. Beautiful. Now, Timothy, my son, I'm giving you this command in keeping with the prophecies once made about you, so that by recalling them, you may fight the battle well. What is he talking about? I mean, oftentimes, you know, they would pray over each other and speak over, and, and, and sometimes people would be moved by the Holy Spirit and speak into someone's life. It's called prophesying. And he says, people have been doing this to you for a long time. And you can remember how, in prayer, how God is speaking these wonderful things about you. You know, remember that stuff so that you can fight the battle well. Why? Because it's easy to doubt in the dark what God has shown you in the light. Should I say that again? It's easy to doubt in the dark what was very clear over here in the light. And... But that's where we need to be encouraged. Sometimes we need to encourage each other when people are going through a very dark time to be there with them, encourage them, lift them up, and remind them, you know, of what was so clear previous. Because sometimes the problems get big. They get really big. And it's hard to see. It's really hard. I'm telling, I'm speaking from personal experience. At times, it's just awful, this whole thing that we've been going through now. Um, you know, with, with Deb, some of you have seen it on my Facebook, but the report on her is that the tumor in her neck has destroyed one of the vertebrae, and she's on the verge of becoming paralyzed. Could have happened last week. I mean, that's that bad. Her arm's already going numb because of the pressure on her spinal cord. So they've got to do this emergency surgery. They've got to go into her neck and use plates and stuff to rebuild that area, or, you know, and it's a pretty easy decision, you know, surgery or paralyzed surgery 
<laughs> so I was like, but man, there's times where it's, it's hard and it's really hard. And people who ask me how I'm doing, if I'm really honest, a lot of times I've some, told some of you I'm, I'm doing terribly. <laughs> but it's okay. You know, I know you're praying for me and it's going to be okay. Why? Because I believe when you get to the end of the rope, you tie a knot and you hang on. Right? And God can turn all this stuff around. And... <laughs> who knows? Who knows what will yet happen? And even not, if she goes to heaven, we still win. We never lose. What's the worst thing that can happen to her? She'll go to heaven. Oh, that's horrible. <laughs> you know, we, we, we never lose on this deal. So, but at times it's hard. At times it's hard to pray. And I don't know what to pray. <laughs> it's like I'm looking at my hand. You know, but I don't panic about it. Because I know, I've been around the block a couple of times. I know what this is. We've been through stuff like this before. This was harder than we've been at, but we've been learning along the way. You kind of get prepared. You keep the armor on. You get ready for when the day of evil comes. Hello, guess what today is? The day of evil. When the doctor walks in, it's the day of evil. <laughs> Not that he's the devil or anything, but you know what I'm saying. <laughs> All right. So, um, where was I? Remember all the stuff so you can do, fight the battle well, holding on to faith and a good conscience. That's the thing. Sometimes you've got to hold on to faith. Why? Because it'll slip away if you're not, and you've got to be intentional. I am not going to be moved. I will trust in what I've always trusted in, and even though I don't feel it and I don't understand it, I am not letting go. That's the way we got to be, okay? But some of these, some people have rejected that and have suffered shipwreck with regard to the faith. They've lost their faith. Among them, like I said, he mentioned some names here. Among them are Hymenius and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan to be taught not to blaspheme. Well, that's got to be a bad day. <laughs> when Paul the Apostle hands you over to Satan. Whoa! So literally all kinds of hell are opening up on the sky, these two guys. The point of it is to bring them to repentance, right? A little discipline. So, well, that's not love. See, this idea that love never confronts people is nonsense. So, what's not love is refusing to confront people. Sometimes you got to get in people's faces and you got to challenge them. Like your kids, you got to, you know, if you always let them do whatever they want to do, that's a bad plan for them. And it's not loving. In fact, the Bible says if you never discipline your children, you hate them. I don't hate them, they're my children. Yeah, you hate them because they're going to end up as a disaster if you don't learn how to teach them to behave themselves all right all right then chapter two chapter two is uh starts out interesting and ends very difficultly <laughs> and we'll get to it it's the whole deal with women and i'll explain all right this is not one of the more one or one of the more warm and fuzzy parts <laughs> uh, and quite frankly i don't know what he's talking about but that's not unusual it's not a, and I don't feel bad. And we've gone over several times when Paul was talking about it, and he would bring up some cultural thing, and you're like, what? What does that mean? I don't even know what it means. And I go through all the theologians, and they don't really know what it means. They're guessing. You can tell they're guessing because it doesn't even make sense what they're saying. We don't know. But the comfort is when we get to Peter, Peter talks about Paul. And what Peter says, you know, there's things Paul say that are really hard to understand. And I go, praise God. Because... <laughs> I don't know what the heck he's talking about, all right? 
and we don't major. When we get to those parts where it honestly doesn't make any sense, we kind of park a little bit. Uh, not out of disrespect, but it doesn't make any sense. You know, it's like when you talked about men having their hair a certain length. Why? It doesn't make any sense. And then women should have their heads covered because of the angels. What angels? Good angels? Bad angels? Are you a good witch? A bad witch? I mean, I would, nobody knows. Every single person you can look at, nobody knows what he's talking about. Consequently, we just don't deal with it. I don't know what he's talking about. I have no idea. When we get to heaven, we might say, Paul, <laughs> what was that? He might go, ah, forget it. I have no idea. <laughs> he was human just like the rest of us. I think sometimes we see the humanity as he's dealing with some of these issues. I think a lot of it had to do with cultural stuff, which is certainly what we'll see uh, at the end of chapter two. Okay, so we'll go through this. There's some real interesting things here. Uh, and first and second Timothy, then we'll hit Titus, which is a very short book, and we'll continue on until we get through all of it. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your kindness and grace and for the instruction of your word. Help us to learn from it, to grow in our faith. Help us, as Paul encourages us, Lord, to have on the full armor of God so that we will be ready for when the troubles come, because the troubles always come. Uh, oftentimes these things come because it's the testing of our faith. You never tempt us, but you do test us. Help us, Lord, be ready for the test. As in school, the worst plan is to study for the test the night before <laughs> or try to study it in the middle of the test. That's not the time. Now, when we have plenty of time, help us to study up for the next test that's coming. Get the character in us, built in us. Help us to take your word. Let it be live and powerful in us so that we can be effective soldiers for your kingdom. In Jesus' name we pray. And everybody said? Amen. Amen. All right, see you next week.